please give uh, a warm welcome to our guest moderator, Olympic editor for The Telegraph, Jacqueline Magnier. Hi, everyone. Welcome. It's my very great pleasure to introduce you to a man who has had an amazing year. 2012 for this man has involved rowing the Royal Barge Gloriana down the Thames for the Queen's Jubilee. It's involved carrying the Olympic torch into the Olympic Stadium during the opening ceremony. And it also involved him standing trackside and watching one of his most famous records being broken, but by a friend of his, Sir Chris Hoy. I am, of course, talking about Sir Steve Redgrave, one of Britain's living legends. And it is with great pleasure that I show you a small clip of what he has done during his career. Anyone sees me go anywhere near a boat, you've got my permission to shoot me. I do not want ever want to get in a boat again. I've had enough. So fed up with it. Is it worth? Is it worth it? Olympic Games worth worth going through this hassle. to understand how you could maintain that level for 16 years. You have to have that focus, you have to have that drive, you've got to, have, you've got to be pretty selfish. Um, you have to have all those elements and you've got to be so determined. Daddy goes all the time. But he's able to come away from that boat and switch into being like everybody else. Is he going to do it? I mean, he can't do five. Don't be ridiculous. Having spoken about getting five gold medals, to actually do it, I think is definitely the greatest achievement um, by any Olympic athlete. Talking about the ancient Olympics, it's a Herculean feat, it really is. It's, just, it's the stuff of legends. Might be actually perhaps one of the most single outstanding achievements that I can think of because it's one thing to be in one Olympic Games or two, but five of them and to stay on top of your game was pretty remarkable. Hold on, boys! 
Do you all have goosebumps? <laughs> if uh, we could now perhaps give a warm welcome to Sir Steve to the uh, stage, and so we can uh, <laughs> welcome. Watching that video, of course. What memories do you have of that time? Does it seem just like yesterday? Well, when you, you watch that, uh, that, that video, it's more of, of the age of my children more than anything else, is that my son was only two, he's 14 now, and he's the same height as me as he was there, that uh, uh, my mother's reasonably strong at 82, but she wouldn't be able to hold him in, it, in, his, in her arms uh, anymore, and it, it's sort of that side. But in some ways, the last 12 years have gone really quickly. Um, um, the, I suppose of the build-up to, to London 2012 and, and still living the dream of the Olympics, but in a slightly different way. It seems to have gone really quickly. But, uh, the, yeah, it's, it's sort of uh, seeing the pictures of how young the family are, is that my eldest was nine, she's now nearly 22, and uh, that uh, are following a, a, sort of, a sort of sporting career in her own right, but not quite the same as my wife and myself. Now, you were involved in the bid for London 2012 a long, long time ago now. I mean, what did you think of the Olympics this year? Well, the, the, the Games itself was, was absolutely magical, fantastic. Uh, I had very high expectations of, of what I was expecting for the Games, and it uh, uh, overachieved on what I thought it was doing. But you're exactly right that uh, um, when I came retired from Sydney, within four or five weeks, I was on the bid team for trying to bring the games here to London. And uh, so sort of going from an athlete almost sort of uh, to, a, to a, bid, a bid winning team and then into a, a delivery process for the last seven years. And so it's sort of the Olympics are following it right the way through. Um, when the cauldron went out at the Paralympics is that um, it sort of, of suddenly hit me that uh, uh, instead of retiring where somebody like Seb, Seb Coe of, of, of managing the whole process in, in the last few years is that when he retired his athletes, he went into politics and went uh, in business and done lots of different things, is that my sort of uh, career went from being an athlete to be involved in, in bringing the games to the country and then the delivery side of it. And when that cauldron went out, it sort of think, well, what am I going to do now? It was quite a, quite a, big, uh, a big hole in some ways and, and uh, sort of uh, uh, still sort of struggling with it in some ways of thinking, well, what am I going to do next? Rio, I think, is going to be a, a fantastic Games, but uh, it's not going to be the same, quite the same as, as, as uh, uh, trying to bring the Games to your own country and the delivery in your own country. Um, but, uh, yeah, quite, quite scary times from that <laughs> point of view. Now, during the Olympic Games, what was your favourite moment? I think... Internally, within my own sport, it's got to be Catherine Granger 
Catherine was competing at my last game. She was her first games in Sydney. She was in the women's quadruple scale that won a silver medal. And that was the first time that a women's British crew had won a medal um, for Great Britain at the Olympics. So that was a sort of a landmark uh, um, uh, time. And then uh, as I retired, obviously she carried on sort of start of her career and won a silver medal at the next Olympics and then won a silver medal at the Games after that. So following a, uh, a, a whole period of, of winning silvers, but being world champion six times over. And uh, she should have won, I think, in, in Beijing, but it didn't happen for her and her crew at that time. And uh, you're thinking, well, should, would she retire? Um, um, after Beijing, but she decided that she was wanted to carry on, and it was such a an apt moment of uh, uh, sort of uh, winning that gold at home home water. It seems sort of uh, the fairy tale story in some ways, and, uh, and and rightly so for her. Outside my own sport, uh, there's probably a few moments. And Mo Farrow, I was in the in the stadium for the the 5,000 meters. He'd already won the 10,000 a few days before. And uh, stories I'd heard, I wasn't able to get into the stadium that night. And they said it was just unbelievable. Of the, the 26 laps that he was doing of standing ovation, it was, it was going around. And the way that I would describe that 5,000 is that uh, normally you get sort of the Mexican wave of, uh, of people sometimes within a stadium at certain points. And there was that, that sort of enthusiasm from the spectators. But weren't people standing up and throwing their arms in the air as you would do with the Mexican wave? It was like a Mexican wave of noise. So as the, the group was running around, the leading group was running around, there was just a bank of noise just travelling around with that. And I've never experienced uh, anything like that uh, at all. And that was, that was pretty special. And also, then, the flashlight cameras following him oh, around yeah, as well. Uh, <laughs> definitely, it, uh, that uh, they didn't need the uh, uh, the main lighting on on that that particular day. But then also at the Paralympics, which I just thought was a, an amazing event as well. But uh, I was in the, the stadium for um, uh, David Weir winning the 800, uh, the third of his four golds, and uh, also uh, um, Johnny Peacock, who was doing the 100 metres. And uh, in recent years in athletics, they've had the process of, of not having full starts. Is that anybody does a full start, they get disqualified. So they have what they call faulty starts, especially for the Paralympians as well, is that when they balance themselves on the, on the blocks, sometimes it's really quite difficult for them to, to balance themselves at the right, the right point. And there'd been a number of, of faulty starts. They ended up being four, and it was Johnny that had the, uh, the last full start, long time before the roll call and, and the gun going off. So there was no, no worries about it being a, uh, uh, um, a disqualification. But at that point, sort of 90% of the crowd started chanting his name. Peacock, Peacock, Peacock. And I, I just thought of, of, of how excited I felt and the goose pimples on my arms, the hairs on the back of my neck, thinking how can this guy then composed himself to, to get the best performance that he needs to do to try and win this gold medal. He composed himself really well and, and, and took the gold medal. But again, I've never, ever experienced anything like that before. Now, can I take you trackside in the velodrome? Because one of your great friends here, Chris Hoy, not only equaled your record of five gold medals, but he beat it. What did that feel like watching that race? I always knew it was going to be the case that, uh, that um, probably Bradley and uh, Chris would go past me on, on total medals and probably Chris uh, because about Bradley of, Wiggins uh, there. Uh, of the outstanding athlete that he was or is, is that uh, was going to win more gold medals than me. 
and uh, so I had four years of, of gearing myself up for that, that point. So actually, Chris has been a close friend of mine, so uh, I could join in the celebrations of, of him winning a goal for Great Britain. But then the BBC asked me to go down uh, into the middle area. Um, and so when Chris went through the, the, the medal rostrum, and then he comes and gives the interview straight afterwards, is that I was hiding behind the reporter. And uh, her first words to him, um, what's it like of, of winning six Olympic gold medals? Because there's somebody here that would like to know. <laughs> so I went up and, and gave, him, gave him a big hug. And uh, uh, I whispered in his ear, I said, have you definitely retired? And he says, yeah, no. I said, if you've retired, then I'm making a comeback. <laughs> well, of course, he has the Glasgow Commonwealth Games coming up and looming as well. And it's a question for many athletes. Do they retire on the back of a great success at a home games? Or do they perhaps milk that success and try and continue on and, and make some commercial opportunities out of it? What would be your advice to those athletes? It's really difficult of that retirement of when you actually stop. And it's really difficult of, of sort of pinpointing um, uh, a point. I remember when I was saying I was going for my third Olympics, my third Olympic gold medal, and, and some quite close family members were saying, why, why are you going on? You've won the Olympics twice over. Why try and do it again for, for a third time? You're only putting your head on the, on the chopping block to, to, uh, 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 to be chopped off in some ways. But the thing is, if, if you've still got the ambition, you've still got the focus, you still want to try and achieve something, um, it's not, yes, it is about trying to win Olympic gold medals. It is trying to be the best. But it's also putting yourself through the boundaries. And uh, I felt I could go faster as an athlete. I felt I could achieve more. And so I, I was spurred on to, 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 uh, uh, to carry on. Um, but if you don't try, you don't know. So people saying, oh, it's nice to stop at the top. But where's the top? Uh, I think Chris is capable. He's got the, the ability. If he um, um, keeps training and has got the motivation, the hunger, I think in four years, he's got a great chance of, of, of winning more gold medals. Um, but it's difficult for me to say, has he got that hunger? Now, I know that he, want to, he wants to compete in the Commonwealth Games, that uh, being a Scot and the Commonwealth Games being in Scotland, that's a, it's a great uh, uh, target for him. And actually, if he gets there and he does compete, then you're only sort of two years away from the next Olympics. And that may be uh, um, uh, too close to, to ignore. So where at the moment he's saying, no, definitely not. And he's, he's still not fully convinced that he's going to do the, the Commonwealth Games. But um, uh, if he does do the Commonwealth Games, I can see him probably doing another Olympics as well. Just reflecting on the, Com uh, on the Olympic Games, when you ran into the Olympic Stadium with the torch for the opening ceremony, can you describe what was going through your head, what that moment felt like? Obviously very, very special and uh, that um, uh, I was involved with the BBC with the, the, the pre-show before the opening ceremony. And then as the opening ceremony started, I was able to watch the first five, ten minutes of it before then I was taking off backstage and, and getting ready for the, uh, uh, the sequences that were happening for uh, the, the opening uh, process of the torch. Now, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say, but I will, is that uh, the, the bit with David Beckham and the speedboat coming in, that was actually a pre-record. That was only about an hour before uh, the, the, the coming into the stadium. 
um, we had one take of it because all the fireworks going off as the boat came in, um, that was only charged for one time. So if it, if it went wrong from that point of view, there was no doing sort of going back at it and people said oh, you look so fresh when you came into the stadium because as the, the torches were lit uh, from the boats and then I sort of went off the pontoon up the steps and then sort of being seen to run into the distance towards the stadium that's where there was a cut uh -huh. and then it was about an hour later where I started from just outside the stadium running through the construction workers all the construction workers that were involved in building the stadium into the, uh, the opening ceremony and uh, to be then part of, of 80,000 there, and I don't know how many millions or billions around the world that was watching it, is that, uh, a very, very, very special moment, being the last Olympian to carry the torch. And uh, some people think that I should have been the, the last one and actually lighting the cauldron. What do you think were, about that? Well, there were a few people that are saying that uh, you've still got your opportunity because as you come into the stadium, you don't have to pass that torch <laughs> on. Just run for it and, and go and light, light the cauldron uh, from, from that point of view. And it did cross my mind. But uh, no, it was, it was a great moment in some ways of, of, of passing on the baton to the next generation. And that's what our bid was all about in some ways of, of uh, enhancing uh, other people to have a, a better situation that we did as we were coming through athletes. So uh, uh, I thought it was a very apt part of, of, of handing that baton over. During the London Olympics, there was some enormous success by Team GB female athletes, and particularly in rowing, winning gold medals in a sport that they hadn't achieved that level before. And also your home club, Leander Club, has just appointed the first female captain of the club, listen to this, in 194 years of its history. So, do you think that this has some correlation with the Olympics, that females have had a stage now that they haven't had before and that people are perhaps putting them up on a platform? I think that um, um, sort of traditionally within rowing is that uh, women were introduced into Olympics in 76. So, that was a relative, it was before my time, but uh, relatively uh, uh, a little bit further back than... Uh, um, uh, so relatively the history hasn't been as, as long as, as the men but that's no excuse of, uh, of not being recognised in some ways Debbie Flood who's now the, the captain at Leander um, for rightly so she's a, a double Olympic mo uh, medalist in her own right uh, very passionate about the sport very much about uh, of, of driving the next generation on and that's what Leander's all about nowadays is actually uh, a, a finding new athletes finding athletes that have the potential and taking them up to national team for the national team to hopefully take them on to, to win medals. Um, uh, my wife rode internationally, my girlfriend before that rode internationally, and uh, that we've been waiting for a very long time for that elusive gold medal to come along. And uh, with London bus uh, processes, you wait a very long time, and then three, along, three come along at the same time. Um, so that was, that was very special to be part of that. Um, we should have won our gold medal four years before within women's rowing, but uh, I think it was worth the wait for having three this time around and to do it on the home water again was pretty special. But we do have in the country, and I think most countries struggle in the same way, is there are a lot of girls, uh, once they leave secondary school, of, of drop away from sport. There is a, a high percentage of men as well, but more within, within women. And I think the success that we've had this year with, with all our women from a whole cross of uh, different sports is hopefully that's going to motivate young girls and thinking, well, perhaps it is pretty cool to do uh, sport at a high level and, and take it through to another, uh, another process. And uh, I think that uh, if we don't make the most of this opportunity, then I think we've, we've missed a, a big opportunity of, of uh, making that happen. 
Now, before we get off the Olympics, I'm interested to know, you've been in the Olympic Village. We hear some amazing stories that come out of the Olympic Village amongst all those athletes. What's your favourite what, what, story? What amazing <laughs> stories have you heard? That <laughs> um, uh, I, I haven't always stayed in, in, the, in the same state, uh, in, the, in the main village, is that uh, my first games in 84 is that we were rowing up at Santa Barbara. So uh, we had a separate village closer to the venue. Seoul were in the main village. And uh, yeah, there's all sorts of, 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 of so-called parties that go on within the village. But certainly from my experience, that, that is not what happens, is that there is sort of unwritten rules, is that, uh, that even if you've, when you've finished your event, is the, you're expected to, to party, enjoy yourself, but that's off-premises. And when you come back into the village because you've got other people that are focusing on, on their moment uh, during that 17 days, is that, uh, that you let them get on with what they're doing. So there's very little that goes on within, within the games, but there's a lot of, uh, of partying, partying that goes on. The swimmers tend to finish earlier. Um, some of them will be finished after day one. And uh, they're quite good at finding where all the good parties were in the cities are of the Olympic City. And uh, rowing finishes sort of midweek, and then we're very good at finding the swimmers to find out where the good parties are. And then the other sports join us as, as we go on. But no, it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a great atmosphere to be part of uh, of Olympic team, and especially a successful Olympic team. And uh, my last time I competed in, in Sydney that uh, uh, rowing did reasonably well with the eight winning a gold medal as well and they certainly enjoyed themselves around the, around the, around the shores of Sydney. Going back to the Sydney Olympics, of course that was the Olympics that Lance Armstrong won a bronze medal in the road cycling time trial and there's been a lot of controversy about him of recent months. What's your view whether he should keep his Olympic bronze medal or not? Well, the evidence seems to be very strong that uh, that he wasn't doing the right things. He was was cheating, and uh, that uh, uh, my views are have got to be very very strict. It's not just about him and his human rights or any drug cheat along those sort of lines. It's the message that we're giving out to our youth. Is that uh, if if it's not a strong message, then there's sort of there becomes this grey area, and there isn't one person that I've spoken to about Lance Armstrong that are surprised of the allegations that have been coming out. Lance himself is still denying uh, the process, but when there's so many different people from all sorts of different parts of his career that are coming out with the evidence that they are, it, it looks very likely that uh, he wasn't doing things by the book. He's had his uh, Tour de France um, uh, victories taken away from him. So in some ways is that uh, maybe that his uh, Olympic medal should go as well. But then he was coming from an era where cycling may have not been as clean as it, it should have been. So of just penalising one person, uh, that's why in the Tour de France is that they haven't uh, allocated whoever came second into first to taking his titles out because they're not convinced uh, of the people around him were doing things by the book as well. So it becomes a very, a very difficult process. And how far do you go back, though? Because, of course, that is past the eight-year statute of uh, limitations. Do you, where do you draw the line, especially, say, with the East Germans and during their drug-taking in the 1970s? Yeah, there's, there's obviously the, the demise of, uh, especially East Germany, there was a lot of uh, evidence coming out of, of uh, the doping that was going in with, a, with their country. And uh, I think in some ways that you have to draw a line at some, at some stage. And the IOC rules of, of eight years 
uh, two Olympics of you not competing at seems probably fair. So in, in, in hindsight of, 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 uh, of, of what Lance was supposed to be doing, uh, of saying, okay, that it's been, seems to be proven that you weren't doing things by the book, but there's not, not much we can change at that stage. Uh, uh, taking his uh, uh, medal away from him is not really going to make that much difference within the regime of the Eastern Bloc countries. And I think in some sports it was going further than the Eastern Bloc countries as well is that uh, what we've got to be focusing on is not what happened 12 years plus, is more what's going to happen in four years' time and making sure that the sport that we have is, is cleaner than it's ever done before. And uh, I would like to be more resources of, of, of going into uh, to catching uh, people and not doing things the right way than, than worrying about too much of what happened in the past. At the very start of the interview, you were talking about what do you do now that you've retired from the Olympic bid and helping to prepare the Olympic Games. Can you tell me what you are doing? Oh, at, um, uh, lots of, of different things. Is this sort of not the sort of uh, the, the bigger picture of, of something like the Olympics of uh, of bidding, delivering, or or uh, competing at myself. Um, uh, working on a project at the moment uh, up in Chester called the Redgrave Institute, and that's a sort of a bigger sports idea of, of focusing on a, an elite athletes and a higher grade of athletes, but within the educational system, and, uh, but also getting the community involved as well. And that's, uh, that's coming together um, very nicely. And uh, that um, um, all sorts of different things. I'm a trustee of, of, of Comet Relief, so very much in, involved in charity, uh, as well as still president of British Rowing, and also that um, um, more of the technology areas as well. So uh, I've, I've got an app. Um, and uh, so, uh, uh, so Steve Redgrave's River Adventures um, is a sort of a, a new sort of uh, dimension for me to go in. And, uh, but it's, it's quite fun. I like, I like video games. Uh, my son tends to be better than, than I am. Um, I think that's sort of uh, you get to a certain age technically wise that, uh, that uh, I think the age of 30 plus is that uh, there's something that comes over and sort of uh, bars you for doing well at things like that. So uh, my son tends to do better at video games than me. But I think it's quite cool of having your own, your own app. This might be an appropriate moment to have a, a short clip and show you what the app looks like because it's quite exciting.
What's your favourite feature of that app? The piranha at the end? I, I quite like the, uh, the piranhas at the end. That uh, They only make appearance right at the, uh, uh, the end levels. There's two levels there. There's, there's five areas on each, each level. So the, with the, 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 the free app side of it, there's, there's ten um, um, gold medals that we can, can be given out. You get a, those gold chunks that you saw, the gold nuggets. If you collect all them, uh, you get a gold medal. Um, if, if you only collect a few of them, you'll get a silver medal with a percentage of, of what you've, uh, you, you've gained of those. And uh, if you can complete the whole level without crashing uh, or making any mistakes and not missing any of the gold chunks, you'll get a gold star. And I've been able to get gold stars on, on all of the first level and three of the last. I can't get the two golds on the, on the, on the first and the last of the, of the second, second level of it. Um, but uh, when you get onto the last level, is the last bit, you can see some bubbles coming out of the water. And you're thinking, I know there's piranhas in there, but you, you just still can't avoid them. <laughs> what do you say to parents who are trying to get their kids perhaps not playing computer games and, and being more active, yet you're involved in a, a computer game? I think that uh, they shouldn't be playing computer games apart from mine. <laughs> um, I think it's got to be a well balanced. Is is that uh, my three three children, are that uh, uh, one in the twenties and and uh, other two are teenagers, uh, all like video games of some sort. But um, uh, they're very active. They're all quite sporty, um, uh, as well as as uh, in uh, sort of pushing themselves at uh, at university. Eldest is a medical student, so. Uh, that uh, it's got to be pretty bright to be able to do that. Follows in a mother's footstep, not a father's, um, from that point of view. But, uh, yeah, I think life has got to be uh, well balanced. You can't ban anybody from, from not doing something. Um, but it's got to be in, in moderation. I'm probably more obsessive than, than they are with it. Well, I hope uh, children out there and, and teenagers get inspired by the game and, and perhaps take up rowing or uh, even kayaking. Well, one of the, one of the fun things w with the game is, is that... Uh, uh, I quite like the, the game Cut the Rope. Um, and uh, every now and again, there'll be more levels that come out. And that's what we're going to do with, with the app as well, is that uh, uh, in future times that uh, we will have different rivers around the, around the world with different, slightly different challenges within it, um, testing in, in so, all sorts of different ways. So it's not just the two levels that we've got at the moment. There'll be many more levels. There's a lot of rivers out there and a lot of, uh, uh, of, of challenges that we can put into it. Thanks, Steve. Now, I'm just wondering if there are people in the audience who would like to ask a few questions of Steve. I'm sure there are. Yes? So, Steve, I'm a visitor to the UK. And I must say that um, you're extremely popular in my household, as well as in the, the country from where I come. My question is in two parts. Part A, um, are uh, five-time Olympians born or are they made? And part B, what was the hardest medal you won and why? The, f the first part is, um, in some ways, the certain disciplines, you, different levels, is to be a Usain Bolt, is that you've got to be sort of almost born with that talent to be able to run that fast. 
but then you've got to go through the, the preparation, training and competition to be able to get there. Uh, the more of, of, sort of my end of the sport, of more endurance, mine's an endurance power sport, if you're going something like uh, uh, marathon running, is that yes, you have to have the right ability to be able to do those sports, but it's more the training and preparation that you, you, you put into it. So the more training that you can actually uh, uh, of, of put in, the better you can be. So it comes down to more of the, the individual. Yes, you've got to be able to have some of those talents in the, in the first place. Rowing's a leverage sport. Uh, so it's, it's good to be uh, nice and tall and, and be relatively strong but then you've got to have the fitness to be here. So if you don't do the training, you're never going to win any races. So uh, uh, in some ways, you've got to have those asset, uh, assets in the first place. If I was uh, around five foot instead of being just over six foot, is that it's unlikely I'm going to be a, 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 um, a great Olympic champion. But there are other sports I could go into uh, of, of being a lot, a lot shorter from, from that point of view. So it's a little bit of both, is that you're going to have those assets in the first place, but you've got to make the most of that um, and from that point of view. And now I've forgotten what the second part of the question was. The, the hardest. The, the hardest thing is, is, is to, uh, for, for 16 years, from winning my first one to the last one, there are all sorts of issues that get thrown in the way. And it becomes more of mental strength of getting through those times uh, than the physical side of it. And uh, within my career, I came down with colitis and diabetes. And that really sort of uh, threw a spanner in the works of, of uh, the consistency of training and, and different ways. But in some ways, if you want to be good at something, it's, it's about of, of overcoming the issues that are, are put in your path. And that becomes more of the, uh, uh, of the battle in some ways. So actually, when you get to the Olympics, is it the, the, the person that's done the most training that wins the gold medals? Or is it the person that's done a lot of training but has mental strength over the other people? It becomes more of a belief in some ways. And the more that, uh, that you can pair, uh, pair, train and get ready is that uh, of conditioning yourselves to, to be able to win that, that race, the more likely that's the, uh, gonna happen. It's not always a guarantee, but it's not always easy of, of, of following a, that path but again, if you want to be great at something, the more you put into it, the more likely that you're going to get more out of it. I should mention there that Steve actually, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were quite accomplished at both sides of the boat. I was the first um, uh, Olympic athlete to win a gold medal on either side of the boat. Mm. I would have liked to have done the other one as well and done the single. So I've rode stroke side, bow side and, and uh, uh, sculled as well. Um, but I never, I never got selected in, in a sculling boat. Hi, um, I'm Zerona Holmes and I'm sent by Malaysian rowing community. They've been talking about your app for days on Facebook and finally managed to send me here. You are a huge inspiration to them. And uh, the question that they want me to ask you is, um, rowing is a, a very young sport in Malaysia. It only started mm -hmm. taking off in the 90s. How do you make it socially inclusive and how do you... Um, inspire people to get better and keep going? Well, rowing here in, in the UK has, has been going around for hundreds of years. And uh, it's very difficult to, to be all-inclusive because you need a lake or a river that's rowable. And that tends to be the, the limiting factor. With all the success that uh, the nine medals that we had at, uh, in, in the London Olympics is that there's so many people that want to try the sport. And then this autumn has been a very wet autumn, so our rivers have all been in flood, so there's plenty of water, but water that you can't row on at the moment. 
and uh, so teaching people is, uh, is pretty difficult from that point of view. And I suppose that's one of the restrictions that we have uh, around the world. One of the things that the FISA, the international governing body, uh, are doing all the time is promoting the sports in, in more and more countries and, and building their, their levels up. Uh, things like the Asian Games, the Pan-American uh, Pan Games, and so, uh, uh, those type of events are really good. Um, it would be great if we could still have rowing in the Commonwealth Games. Well, good from one point of view, from a promotional point of view and getting more countries involved. The only downside that I have on that is I'm reigning Commonwealth champion in the single scales, the coxes pairs and, and coxed fours. So if they introduce rowing back into the Commonwealth Games, I won't have any titles left. All my titles have gone apart from, from those. Uh, but no, I think that uh, that, that, would, that would be a, a, a still a very good uh, process. Um, that there, there tends to be a lot of, of, of events around within Europe. It tends to be more a European based sport than, than anywhere else. And we do need to be uh, widening our, our, our areas from that. Um, as I say, the international body are, are doing a fair amount, but uh, I think that um, a, a lot of, of my generation and some that have, are, are coming to the end of their career as well. I was in Sri Lanka a couple of weeks ago and uh, I was giving the prize out to a, to a young girl of a charity that I was involved in and uh, from um, uh, ran the tsunami here eight years ago. And the hotel that I stayed at, is I walked in, the manager came out to me and he says, well, what is it about Sri Lanka and rowers? And I said, well, what do you mean? Mahe Drysdale, who's the Olympic single skulls champion, was there the week before I was. And he was actually doing some uh, rowing um, uh, education and coaching within the, with the rowing club. I didn't even know that Sri Lanka wrote. And uh, they've got seven clubs there. So uh, um, six of them schools and one club. So it is a growing sport. And so it, it's, it, it's something that we need to be pushing all the time. Uh, I may have had a little bit to do with that, but uh, uh, it's something that we've really got to make sure that we're maintaining and getting the, the level up. Uh, India have rode for many, many years, um, but actually stopped coming to the World Championships a few years ago because they focused more on the Asian Games because it helped their, their process of, of getting to a, to a higher level. They still try and compete at the Olympics, but the World Championships isn't their event at, at the moment. And we may have to look about that, of how, how we cope from that. We need to embrace more countries. We'll have more people doing the sports. And uh, so uh, the wider we can uh, uh, have put the net, the, the better our sport's going to be. Okay. The gentleman in the back there. Hi, um, I row on the River Thames, and um, as a junior rower, um, what advice would you give um, to aspiring junior rowers uh, to get to the higher level that you're, you have been at and are at? Which part of the Thames? Um, uh, Barnes. So, right. yeah. Okay. So the Tiger School. Right. Um, the, we have a, a, a very good schools process in this country. Uh, our overall system is, is probably better than most other countries. Uh, if you come from, from North America, there tends to be quite a lot of college rowing, but not many schools or clubs. Where in, in the UK, you can sort of equally split it into three chunks. You've got schools, you've got clubs, and you've got universities. And uh, there's a structure of, of racing almost every weekend. There are a number of races that you can be involved in. 
rowing is very much a, a racing sport, so that, uh, that uh, you get used to being in, in, in that structure. And as a junior, if you're showing some talent and put your name forward to try and get to the Junior World Championships, is that then there'll be a, a series of assessments along the, the year's path, and hopefully by the, uh, the end of the school year that you'll be invited to the final trials and, and to be able to make the team. Um, when I was coming out of juniors, I, I stepped straight from the junior team straight into the senior team, and there were a few athletes that have done that, uh, but it's become harder and harder. And the under-23s were an area when I, uh, they were just started worldwide when I was uh, uh, coming out of the juniors, and, and the under-23s were a little bit of a joke in some ways. Is that if you couldn't make the senior team straight away, is that the under-23s were sort of the best of the next level you could get to, and you were unlikely to make the senior team from that. Uh, but then Great Britain wasn't a dominating force within the sport of rowing at that time, and it was relatively easy to step into the senior team. Now that almost all of our boats that uh, get selected for World Championships and Olympic Games, it's really difficult to go straight from juniors into the senior programme. So the under-23s are now a very good uh, base um, of, of, I suppose, most people start rowing when they're 13, 14, um, sort of... Uh, uh, 16, 17, 18, sort of the junior age of, of showing promise. Um, and then uh, of, of if you're going to go on to further education, of choosing a university that uh, have got a quite a, a, a database of, of past history within the sport is always a good way to go. There's some good universities, not just in this country, but around the world that people are going to. But if it's the national team that you want to make, and if you, you pick more of a, a northern university or, or go off to the States to university, um, in years one and two of your course may be very good. If you want to make the next Olympics of years three and four, you need to be around uh, the team and being part of that. So if you're out in America or at one of the colleges that is not easily accessible to uh, the national team. You're going to find it very difficult to, to make the team. Um, I think he wants to win an Olympic gold medal, Steve. I don't well, think he wants uh, to make that, the national uh, team. Well, that, uh, you've got to make the national team to start with. If you make the national team, then you've got a chance of, uh, of, of winning medals. So, uh, UN23s, strong university, um, and you will be monitored. You will be, uh, there's scouts from the national team looking at all the, the, the promise. Uh, as well as we're sort of scouting out. We had, I started a program called the Sporting Giants five years ago. And uh, from that program, we were looking for women over five foot 11 and may, men over six foot three. And Helen Glover famously uh, came through that program and she was uh, the gold medal, first gold medal of Great Britain. And from that, there was a lot of publicity, publicity around the games, is that we've had over a thousand people um, in the last few months within British rowing or written to British rowing saying, I'm the right size, I want to win a gold medal in, in four years' time, that uh, Helen's done it, why can't I? So the possibility is out there. Um, rowing is going through the scanning process of all those applications and, and they will be monitored very closely to see if they have what it, what it takes. It's not always about the size and the levers, it's a good help, um, but there are other assets that you've got to be able to have as well, so they'll be assessed and see if they, if they, they can make it. Um, I think it's quite tough to make the British team now from when I came through because, as I said before, it was, it was relatively easy to make the senior team, but then it was a bit difficult to get results. If you make the senior team, is you've got a great chance of winning World Championship medals, if not Olympic gold medals. Now, on that note, you've given us a lot to think about, a lot to ponder, and perhaps a new career for yourself. 
And uh, I'd just like to thank you very much for giving us your time here at the Apple Store Pleasure. in Regent Street. And it's uh, been a delight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.